0: Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. We at Israel Policy Forum are pleased to present this episode as part of a series in partnership with Terrestrial Jerusalem, an Israeli organization committed to identifying and tracking developments in Jerusalem that could impact a two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Each month, we'll discuss different issues shaping the policy conversation on Jerusalem, and what a month it has been since the last episode in our series. In our May installment, we discussed the situation in Sheikh Jarrah where several Palestinian families were facing eviction pending a now-postponed ruling from Israel's high court. Hamas ultimately used the confluence of events in Jerusalem as a pretext to commence rocket attacks against Israel, and 11 days of conflict followed. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken visited Jerusalem, and in the wake of the ceasefire, the Sheikh Jarrah crisis persists. Oh, and amid all of this, Israel might be getting a new prime minister for the first time in 12 years and a new government. We're going to unpack each of these issues, and to help us understand what's going on, I'm joined, as always, by Daniel Seideman, an attorney based in Jerusalem and founder of the Terrestrial Jerusalem Organization. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you. As I was just saying, the last time we spoke, Danny, we were talking about Sheikh Jarrah, and that was May 11th, the day after the rocket fire and airstrikes began. The Israel-Hamas war moved the focus of outside attention to Gaza and the Israeli cities targeted by rocket fire, but events in Jerusalem have continued apace. How have things transpired in Sheikh Jarrah in the last four weeks?
1: Before focusing uh, exclusively on Sheikh Jarrah, uh, I I want to give a bit of background and that uh, it is not accidental that there were two radioactive issues. Um, One, the status quo on the Temple Mount Arama Sharif, and the other, uh, large-scale displacement in Sheikh Jarrah, were the detonators of this round of violence. Uh, And um, not necessarily the underlying cause, uh, but definitely the detonators. Uh, And things are not entirely quiet. Um, As we speak, uh, um, our local pyromaniac, Itamar Ben quite possibly in collusion with the prime minister, are planning uh, yet another march uh, like the one that triggered the round of violence a few uh, weeks ago. Jerusalem is a paradise for pyromaniacs. Now I'll get to your question. <laughs> um... There have been developments in Sheikh Jarrah, and I have to say they're disturbing. Um, There are two major cases before the Israeli Supreme Court, and they're raising um, legal issues, as is customary in a regular court of law, but they're also raising uh, meta-legal issues, um, large issues. Uh, about the nature of Israeli governance. Um, and these are extremely sensitive, not simple, and uh, are matters of the highest significance in Israeli society. Now, the justice who is handling these cases, uh, a very, very good justice, if I do say so, indicated that she is very much aware. Um, that the national interests of Israel um, are embedded in these two cases and asked the attorney general to weigh in. I thought that that was a great development. I think it's exactly what should have been done. Uh, It is important that the person who embodies the rule of law in Israel in a matter of such enormous significance weigh in. He said, no, thank you. And basically um, uh, kicked the ball back to the court.
0: And the attorney general just made that announcement that the state was not going to intervene in the case.
1: Yeah. And if if the state doesn't intervene in a case like this, under what circumstances would it? And, And nobody nobody's limiting what he might say. Are you saying that this is something that is less than the highest national priority? You know. Um, when the British came in with the British mandate, they did something very wise. They had an order in council, which determined that uh, matters of religious sites will not be adjudicated by a court of law, um, because there are things that are just too complex and com- complicated to be ruled by the letter of the law. Uh, and. In the Talmud, we have something um, sufficient. Uh, Jerusalem was only destroyed because um, the rule of law was a, of the Torah was a, a applied in it. There are situations that are too complicated and radioactive for the court and too complicated and radioactive for the rule of law. This is one of them. And our attorney general um, proved to be something of an invertebrate.
0: So, speaking about the potential that was there previously for Attorney General Avichai Mandelblit to intervene in this case, uh, was there an assumption that, had the state intervened, it would have intervened on behalf of the Sheikh Jarrah residents now facing eviction? What? What were people seeking and hoping for the state to step in on this case?
1: With your permission, I won't focus on Mendel, I'll focus on the judge and why she has been put in an impossible situation. Rule in favor of the settlers and she will be viewed as the war criminal because under international law, and most people think that international law governs east jerusalem forceful the displacement of a population under occupation is a war crime rule in favor of the residents and among else her life will probably be endangered by the extreme right in israel it is a great injustice to take uh, the most volatile issue today in israeli society and put it before the court
0: If I can put the question back to you, what would the state's intervention have done to help ameliorate this difficult position that the court is in?
1: Let me answer by telling you a story, although I know uh, that the times have changed a bit. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, there was a similar policy to what we're seeing in Sheikh Jarrah, but it was a policy targeting individual civilian families. Uh, uh, Palestinian families. It wasn't targeting entire neighborhoods, uh, but it was using similar tactics. And when Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin Zal became Prime Minister, he did something very simple. He, he appointed a board of inquiry headed by the Director General of the Ministry of Justice, Chaim Klugman. And they looked at what was happening. They looked at Israeli policies and they concluded that there was uh, systemic irregularity and illegality. The report did not redress the injustices that were inflicted upon the Palestinian families that were targeted, but it put a t- stop to the policies. Um, and they've never gone back to that. You know, The government of the state of Israel has sufficient authority to analyze what the, a public interest is to make sure that the public interest is carried out under law and, and to protect their interests. Uh, and um, the easily available way of having the Attorney General look into this is not going to happen. We're just going to have to find an alternative.
0: If I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying this is something that is best addressed as an issue of state policy. As happened under the Rabin government as opposed to something that is brought before the court as a legal dispute.
1: Let me give you a legal interpretation of what you just said. I I'm asking a big legal question. Is it legal for the government of Israel to harness all of its authorities, all of its powers, all of its organs, all of its laws to target? Um, One community, a Palestinian community, a Palestinian neighborhood with the sole goal of turning it over to settler organizations and individuals who have absolutely no connection to these properties, uh, except their ideology. Is it legal for the state of Israel to do that? I don't think that's only a moral question. It's a legal one. You know, it's the kind of thing that that courts like to avoid. The United States the Supreme Court avoided the legality of the war in Vietnam, even though we're very, very compelling arguments. I understand that. But what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah is our Udat It is the identity card of Israeli society, and it doesn't look good.
0: While we're talking about Sheikh Jarrah, there's also another situation happening in parallel, also involving the pending eviction of Palestinians from another neighborhood in East Jerusalem. This time, it's around 700 Palestinian residents in the Silwan neighborhood. Can you give us an overview of those cases and what similarities, if any, exist between the Silwan and Sheikh Jarrah situations other than the superficial
1: Actually, we're talking about four neighborhoods uh, that are collectively at risk. Uh, there are two in Sheikh Jarach, one around the tomb, and the other across Nablus Road to the west, bordering on route number one, uh, Umharun, which was uh, a community of uh, Georgian Jews, Jews from the Caucasus. And there are two in silwan One is Batan al-Hawa, And uh, the other is um, the potential of large scale demolitions in Al Bustan, uh, the wadi between Batan al Hawa and City of David, Ir David, um, uh, Wadi Khilwe. I would say to the lead person there's no difference. It is Uh, the systematic use of law and authority in order to ring the old city with biblically motivated settlers. That's what's going on here. And everything in official Israel is being harnessed to that. Are there differences? Yeah. Um, In the case of Batan al-Hawa, the mechanism that was used to take over properties was uh, the settlers managing years ago uh, in collusion with the rabbinic courts to take over a a religious endowment, which was defunct for decades. And once um, they took over that endowment, they, you know, artificial resuscitation, they breathed life into it. Um, It came back to life and it went after the property that was once registered in its name. So the technicalities are different and the lawyers have to know that. And there are really good lawyers on this. Uh, But to the layperson, same thing.
0: In the throes of all of this between these eviction cases and the crisis in Gaza, conflict between Israel and Hamas, uh, we get a visit from U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, who came to the Middle East at the end of last month. And one of the stops that he made on his trip was in Jerusalem. What was he trying to accomplish there?
1: What was he here for? To put out a fire. I don't want to go back to prehistory. Where I'm, I'm still personally recovering from the Trump period. Um, but Trump left scorched earth. Um, he left um, a completely dysfunctional situation. No policy to speak of. Uh, much of the good people uh, in the State Department were gutted. Uh, and the, the, the people who remained, and there were wonderful people who remained were traumatized. And when the Biden administration came in, there was something of expectation, but they focused elsewhere. And you know, uh, you know, I can't blame them. Um, there is the pandemic, there is Russia, there is China, there is Iran. And we Israelis and Palestinians are basket cases. No, what, what, what are you going to do? But but early on, I was warning, publicly and privately. Uh, I it, it is more than legitimate uh, to downgrade or deprioritize this conflict. I would probably do the same. But there ain't no fifty ways to leave this lever. You know how you have to know how to do that. And if you ignore Jerusalem. And the radioactive issues in Jerusalem, you'll be back and you will be dragged back screaming and kicking because Jerusalem is a very kind city to those who treat her complexity with the reverence it deserves. And it's a very nasty and vindictive town to those who treat her cavalierly. The Biden administration basically put everything on hold in terms of staffing, in terms of policy. Uh, and they found themselves not only with Gaza in flames and internishing warfare on the streets of Israel between Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel in ways we've never seen before. And it, it you know what starts in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem. there are tremors that are sent throughout, you know, um, uh, throughout the region. Um, that, that is the context of the Blinken visit. You know, I'm I'm not in a position uh, to give grades, and the Blinken visit was hastily organized. I can say that a number of very consequential things were done and done correctly. It doesn't amount to a full coherent. American foreign policy, but it's good and it's been helpful. One uh, serious engagement on Sheikh Jarrah and um, Silwan. Two, a concern about um, the status quo on the Temple Mount, uh, Haram al Sharif. Three, the decision to reopen the consulate, which sends a clear message after four years of uh, Trump shouting from the rooftops that Palestinian lives don't matter, sending a clear message that Palestinian lives matter and that this administration will things that will be difficult for them uh, with Israel. But they will do that.
0: Just to pause for a moment, because some of our listeners may not be fully familiar with the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem or the former U.S. consulate in Jerusalem and its significance. Uh, What was the purpose of that mission? Why did the Trump administration have it shuttered? And what do you think is the significance of Blinken's announcement that the Biden administration will reopen a U.S. consulate in Jerusalem?
1: I I met with a senior consular figure uh, for Shabbat lunch. And I asked him if he knew where the first U.S. consulate was,
0: uh, which he didn't. It was in the, the old city, right?
1: In Jaffa Gate, as you walk in and you look straight ahead uh, at the entrance to Rehobo Shal the chain street, there's a two-story building and there's a cab company on the second floor. That was the consulate. I think it was in the 1840s. The, the American consulate was not only of historic value, it was basically the embassy to Palestine. Israel had a great embassy to, to Israel in Tel Aviv. um, um It also took care of the consular affairs of Jerusalem. uh, And there are a number of other uh, countries with deep historical consular roots, the French, the British, etc. But basically, it was the conduit uh, to communication uh, with the Palestinians. Trump shut it down. Now, he could have just moved the embassy to Jerusalem and left the consulate. But no, Trump was about... The denationalization of the Palestinians. Uh, all of Trump's policies. The Trump plan are a reflection of Netanyahu's plan in the past and policies in the present. And that is Israeli hegemony with a, uh, a fragmented, fractured Palestinian group of individuals with diminished humanity. Uh, you count less. And That sense of counting less certainly contributed to the outbreak and violence because young Palestinians in Jerusalem can't imagine a trajectory of how they become free. How does occupation end? There's no North Star on the horizon. And the Biden administration did the courageous thing. Um, uh, Reopening the consulate is not an easy lift. The Israeli government, the old one, the new one, is going to give the Biden administration some beef over this. But it sent a message to Israelis and Palestinians, and that's the language that Blinken's been using, equal. And he's not turning into a woman stater. There are major differences between Peter Biner and Blinken. Okay? Um, his equality is there is parity between the equities, national, religious, and political between... Israelis and Palestinians. He did something small, but very significant. There's a very prominent activist, uh, Isar Amro from Hebron, very articulate. And he keeps on getting arrested by Israel uh, because that's what occupations do. They arrest activists. And he met with him, and he listened to him, and he met with him publicly. Um, all of these cumulatively add up to something of reassurance. The United States is not leaving give us time. Uh, No, this is not yet a full-fledged foreign policy, uh, but we are not abandoning the conflict, we're not abandoning Israelis, and we're not abandoning Palestinians. And, And that, I think, had a positive benefit.
0: In other words, the Biden administration here is viewing Israel and the Palestinians both as distinct national entities, which sort of runs counter to both the Trump administration or Netanyahu kind of one state annexationist vision and what you alluded to the uh, single democratic state or, or binart style one state.
1: I, I, I would say to myself under these circumstances, curb your enthusiasm <laughs> because the United States and me among them as uh, an American Jew who moved here 50 years ago um, have deeply ingrained in us the ability of identifying and caring about Israeli concerns um, uh, Israelis, American Jews and consecutive US administrations have but not been nearly as successful uh, and I don't think that the playing field uh, has been leveled. But I see an awareness that it needs to be leveled. And it gives us something to work with. Um, For me, the visit went far better than I anticipated.
0: While we're on the topic of Secretary Blinken's Middle East trip, one of the other stops that he made was in Amman, where he met with Jordan's King Abdullah. Now, you mentioned earlier the questions of the status quo on the Temple Mount. And of course, Jordan has a special role in Jerusalem, having occupied East Jerusalem before 1967 and maintaining custodianship over Muslim holy sites there even today, most importantly, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So why did Blinken choose to incorporate Jordan into his itinerary this time amid these crises in Jerusalem?
1: The Temple Mount, Al-Aqsa, are of uh, great religious uh, and cultural importance. They're also a small atomic device. And we saw some of their capabilities recently. None of us who monitor uh, Jerusalem were surprised by what happened. The status quo has been eroded. I think on occasions it's collapsed. The status quo says uh, Muslims pray on the Temple Mount, non-Muslims visit the Temple Mount. I'm quoting Netanyahu verbatim. That's no longer the case. Uh, The police, five years ago, were the most moderating influence on the Mount, and today they are totally allied with the settlers, and they're a problem. Um, In the past, Netanyahu was attentive to the needs of Jordan and to the needs of King Abdallah, even though there has been bad blood between them since 1996. So, and there have been persistent indications of an intent to downgrade or to dilute the Jordanian role as custodian on the Temple Mount. Something, by the way, that appears in our peace agreement with Jordan. Uh, when I talked earlier about um, Trump leading scorched earth, here Trump left scorched earth. Two billionaire rich kids. Kushner and MBS, uh, unburdened by knowledge or experience, were playing dice with the universe and the dice that were playing were on the Temple map. It is essential um, to, be recon- to begin the reconstruction of the status quo, not only to restore um, the credibility of Jordanian custodianship, but to restore good relations between Jordan Um, and Amman. Um, Some of the relations have remained intact and good throughout our military, our intelligence, and that can be built upon. Um, But in the past, this was always brokered by the United States. Kerry would be on the phone for hours, pulling us back from the brink, and invariably he succeeded. Uh, Under Trump, there was no telephone. And in the early months of the Biden administration, nobody picked up the phone. Well, I think that it will likely be high on the agenda of the uh, Biden administration to restore good relations between Jordan and Israel, between King Abdullah and the next prime minister, hopefully Bennett, um, to restore the status quo, to micromanage. It, it's, it's not difficult. All of these things are achievable. And and by the way, I don't think I'm bringing them any news. They know this. They know this, and it's, it's on the agenda.
0: Last topic before we round this episode out, there's the 61 Knesset member elephant in the room that is Israel's prospective new government. With just days to go before the new coalition could be sworn in, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is poised to lose his position for the first time since 2009, pushed for a revival of the flags march through the Muslim quarter in the old city. That march was supposed to happen on Yom Yerushalayim. It was officially canceled by the organizers after the police refused to approve its route, and it appears that the same may happen now. But back on Yom Yerushalayim, many of the marchers still went ahead without the parade organizers official sanction, especially because they canceled very much at the last minute. So is this the end of the story? And what was Netanyahu trying to do here anyway in encouraging this march to go ahead?
1: Uh, First of all, I'm not entirely sure that he did um encourage it, although you know it's it's highly likely. You know, it's it's interesting. Um I used to give Netanyahu high grades on the way he managed Tarama Sharif, the Temple Mount. I mean, um A senior diplomat uh, called me a few years back and said, hey, 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 I just I just got a phone call from um, the prime minister's office from one of his closest confidants. And he says, even Danny Seidman says he's doing a good job in the Temple Mount. You know, it was true. Uh, He was risk averse. Um, He was familiar. He was a hands on manager. None of that's the case anymore. Uh, I don't think he's governing and it may well be that the DNA of the extreme right is such a part of contemporary Israel. doesn't need encouragement from Netanyahu. That is a complimentary interpretation of events. And I'm not sure he deserves it. <laughs> um, let me put it delicately. You have January 6th, and we have marches in the Old City. It's remarkable. I mean... I, I I remember um as a child or a youth uh the day that um the sixty-seven war broke out and and that the old city fell into Jewish hands and just what an exhilarating experience that was, even for the devoutly secular like myself. Uh the Israeli right has turned uh our sacred and historical sites into the detonator of choice and they've defiled them.
0: Is there a connection between what is happening now though, with the possible uh, whether it's explicit encouragement or tacit implicit encouragement from Netanyahu for this March to go ahead and the political situation with Netanyahu on the verge of losing his, uh, his position.
1: Put very bluntly, it worked last time with the outbreak of violence with Gaza. Let's try it again.
0: You know, unfortunately it's sad to see it play out like this, where lives are being put on the line for the sake of one person's political ambitions, but uh, it only worked for a time. I mean, Bennett said that he would not form a change government or not participate in a change government while the conflict in gaza was ongoing and then it ended and then he did but it's a very cynical calculation nonetheless if that is the calculation that is being made
1: we be'ezrat hashem inshallah may it please the lord have a new government on sunday everybody loves being snarky about it and i'm among them having said that there will be a new dynamic it will be much more responsible. There will be good ministers in this cabinet. There will be responsible adults. It means that we have things that we can work with that we don't have at the moment. Um, until Netanyahu is gone, and shortly thereafter, Israel will be living one of its few most dangerous periods.
0: And speaking of the new government, you know, as you said, Netanyahu used to take a much different approach to Jerusalem. So. It seems clear that you don't have to be a leftist to take a more responsible approach to the city. Do you think that this new Israeli government, should it be sworn in, uh, given its mixed makeup running from left to right across the political spectrum, will take any kind of a different approach from what Netanyahu is doing right now?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to make a minor correction in something you said. I never said that Netanyahu had a, you know, a, a more positive or favorable approach to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount. Netanyahu was never good on Jerusalem. He was responsible for the Temple Mount. Uh, I, let me give you two small examples. We, we don't know. We'll be exploring possibilities, but two examples. Naftali Bennett, he's an unknown quantity. He is portrayed, especially by my progressive friends, uh, and with good reason. He's worse than Netanyahu. He's further to the right. Uh, he's terrible. Look at all of these horrible quotes, and they're being accurate. But I'm willing to bet that um, it's not only that we don't know who Naftali Bennett is, neither does he. Um, and I would not rule out the possibility, and I'm focusing, that when approached by Jordan, or the United States, and say, let's rebuild the status quo. Every prime minister in Israel since Levi Eshkol in 1967 supported the status quo. Let's work together. I think he would be amenable to that. It's at least worth exploring. Another thing, our police, as I mentioned, used to be very moderating on the Temple Mount. They're not. They've been treating the Palestinians of East Jerusalem in recent weeks and months as the enemy. And I'm going to say it bluntly. In many ways, they've morphed into a militia. Um, you know, when, when this 15-year-old girl was shot in the back by a rubber bullet in her yard in Sheikh Jarrah, immediately my daughters called me and say, been there, done that. We know the guy. He was the guy who would abuse us at the demonstrations outside Netanyahu's house. Well, we're going to have a new minister of internal security, minister of police, Omer bar His father was chief of staff, and his father was minister of police. He's a humanist, and he was commander of Sayeret Matkala, or Krak commando unit. He knows what command is. If there's anybody in Israel that will be able to restore discipline and some menschlichkeit. Uh, to the Israeli police, it's him. And that's his ministerial responsibility. Does that end occupation? Is it a political process? No. But we will have what to work with. And we'll only begin finding out what that is next week.
0: And I hope that we do begin to find out what that is next week, because... Uh, As many people have observed, it's not over until it's over, although it really does seem like now that a new government will be sworn in, I believe, on Sunday. So perhaps on our next episode next month, we'll be talking about what this new government is doing.
1: Looking forward.
0: Danny, thank you, as always, for joining the podcast and for your partnership and for sharing your expertise. My pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you again for tuning in. Until our next episode, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you next time.